Hello and welcome to Pocket Therapist. I'm your host, Dr. Adam Moore, licensed marriage and family therapist. I'm going to teach you everything I've learned over the last 13 years as a therapist to help maximize the value you get out of your relationships. When I was a kid, Christmas was everything. I probably spent three quarters of the year obsessing over what I was going to ask for. When I grew up, my family didn't have a lot of money, and Christmas was that one time a year when I could get something really cool because some dude in a red suit was bankrolling it on the back end somehow. I don't know how the, you know, the economics of that. I don't think I fully understood that at the time, but I knew I could get cool stuff on Christmas. Now, I still love Christmas, maybe in different ways than I did when I was a kid. I used to have a hard time sleeping at night uh, on Christmas Eve. My my siblings and I would stay up till 2 or 3 in the morning just desperately wanting to sleep to get the night over with faster so we could wake up and open stuff, but we couldn't sleep. Now I have no problem sleeping except that I'm too busy wrapping and building stuff like until 2 or 3 in the morning the night before Christmas because I postponed it, and that's my nice way of saying I procrastinated it until the night before. But I really get something different out of Christmas than I used to. And that is, I love the look on my kids' faces when they open up something that is meaningful, that they've been thinking about, wishing for, hoping that they would get. And it's just an absolute joy for me to be able to do that. Today, we're going to be talking about eight proven ways to improve your life satisfaction. And these are research-based methods that you can implement today to have immediate results in some cases or fairly short-term results in others. We all have this intuitive sense that giving is better than getting, but what does the research have to say about it? Well, we know through research that retail therapy really doesn't work. We actually tend to spend the most money when we feel the worst, and that money brings us little to no satisfaction in the long run. Let me tell you what I mean. And all of the research studies that I highlight in this episode, I will put references to in the show notes so that if you're into that kind of thing, you can check them out later. Researchers sat a bunch of people down and asked them how much they would be willing to pay for a particular product. But before they showed them the product, they split the people into two groups. One of the groups was shown a very sad video so that just before they decided how much they would be willing to pay for the product they were being showed, They were feeling really sad, and the other group didn't watch the video. What's absolutely fascinating to me is that people who were feeling sad because of what they'd watched in the video offered to pay nearly four times as much for the very same product compared to the people that did not watch the video. Sadness causes people to spend more money. And what's really interesting is that despite that major difference, the people in the sadness group actually insisted that the video's sad content had not influenced them in how much they were willing to pay. They just didn't know it. So buying things for other people can actually improve your life satisfaction. But let's take it a step further, because research actually tells us that paying money for stuff is inferior to paying money for experiences. For example, let's say you're into mountain biking. What would be the smarter purchase? a brand new mountain bike with upgraded hardware, or a mountain biking experience in a distant location that you've never been to before. Well, unless the mountain bike you currently own is absolutely trash, you'd be better off paying for the experience to go somewhere new, especially if it involves other people. 
there are a lot of social benefits that we get from purchasing experiences that involve other people. When compared to purchasing stuff, things, experiential purchases can actually increase personal well-being two to three times more than just buying stuff. We're less likely to regret purchasing experiences than things. And there are really three main benefits to paying for an experience. First, we have all of the anticipation, the planning, the preparation. Most of us can enjoy some elements of that, although certainly there's some stressful things about prepping for a vacation, for example. Then you get to enjoy the event itself, which is extra beneficial if you're doing it with other people. And finally, and you all know what this is like, we get to remember and have positive memories of that experience for the rest of our lives. We can indefinitely enjoy the memory of the experience. So that's number one and number two. Spend money on others, and if you're going to spend money on yourself, make it an experience, and if you want bonus points, make it a group experience. Number three, forgive someone. You know, people tend to avoid forgiveness. I've noticed this because I think they don't really understand what forgiveness actually is. So many times we mistake forgiveness for other things, like trusting people again, or condoning behavior, or leaving ourselves open to being hurt again. The truth is, forgiveness is really not any of those things. In my mind, forgiveness is a choice that we make to not allow past hurts to damage my present emotional state or my present experience. I can forgive someone and still not necessarily trust them because they haven't earned trust. I can forgive someone and still have boundaries with that person, again, because they may not have earned the right to have a completely open and free relationship with me. And I can absolutely forgive someone and still make the statement unequivocally that what they did was absolutely wrong and cannot be repeated. Again, forgiveness is more of an internal experience. Let me tell you about what the research tells us about the benefits of forgiving others. It can lower our blood pressure. It can reduce anxiety. Forgiveness can lower stress and a sense of hostility. People who forgive others have fewer depressive symptoms their sleep can improve, and you can even have reduced physical pain symptoms. Of course, it's easy to talk about forgiveness. It's easy to say, well, you should just choose to forgive that person. But my experience for myself and with my clients is that talking about forgiveness is a lot easier than actually practicing forgiveness. In fact, sometimes people will ask me, how do I do forgiveness? I mean, I want to forgive, I just don't know how to do it. There are lots of practical ways we could talk about forgiveness, but let me share one step you can take to get you ready to forgive, to make it just a little bit easier to practice forgiveness. When we experience anything in life, our brain encodes that memory through a process that I frankly don't really understand. But what I know about it is that all of the sights, the sounds, the smells, the emotions, and the physical sensations in our body are encoded all together into a big giant constellation of information that makes up a particular memory. When we recall the memory, all of that information is brought up. So for example, if you were betrayed by a loved one and you remember that betrayal experience, there's a good chance you're going to remember the images, the sounds, the emotions, all of that all at the same time. It makes people want to avoid thinking about those past hurts because we don't like feeling those emotions again. We don't like re-experiencing the trauma. But here's what's really interesting. Our brain actually doesn't know the difference between experiencing an event the first time 
and remembering the event. It's the same thing in our brain. And we can use this to our advantage when we want to practice forgiveness. Let me show you how. If when I go to remember or discuss or share a hurt that someone caused me, let's say I'm telling a therapist or a friend or a family member about something bad that happened to me that caused me to not trust another person, to struggle to forgive that person. When I activate that memory, all of the images, the emotions, the physical sensations, my brain has to go ahead and re-encode that memory back into long-term memory after I have brought it up. Now, I can attach something new to the memory. So if I'm remembering that, and then I have a positive experience where I feel safe, I feel listened to or cared about, something funny happens, that new experience will get attached to the old memory. And if I do that a handful of times, if I share that memory with someone, and each time I share it, I bring up another positive experience, I change the data that's attached to that memory, then eventually the new positive uplifting experience will be encoded with that memory as if it happened at that time, and it will completely change the way I remember that painful experience forever. If I can do that, I can soften the pain of the trauma that occurred to me, and that can help prepare me for forgiveness. Number four, and we can use this also in conjunction with practicing forgiveness or working through painful experiences, and that is what we call expressive writing. So number four is to practice expressive writing. Expressive writing is a form of, say, journaling, but it's not just keeping history or writing down the events or the facts of what happened. Expressive writing has two components. The first is chronicling what happened, writing down what happened and the emotions associated with it. So if I'm hurt, if someone caused me harm or pain, I write about what happened. I feel upset. I feel angry. I feel sad. This is what occurred and this is why it's upsetting to me. Now, a lot of people stop there it's kind of like um, the sixth grade journal that you pull out of your dusty box somewhere in your attic, and it's just all emotion. It's all the annoying things that were happening. It's all the people that were upsetting you. Research actually shows that that kind of writing makes you feel worse. It doesn't make any progress for you. It doesn't cause a sense of growth or improvement. So this is what you have to do to make expressive writing actually therapeutic. In addition to sharing the emotions you're experiencing about an event, you need to add a component that's about making sense of what happened or trying to decide what you're going to do with it for personal growth or development. So instead of just writing, so-and-so hurt me and I'm so upset, I would say so-and-so hurt me and I'm so upset and this is going to help me learn patience in my life or this is going to help me learn empathy for other people's pain because now I know how it feels to be hurt. Something has to be written about how you're making sense of what happened and where you're going to go with it, what you'll do with it. If you add those two components together, you have a beautiful example of expressive writing that's therapeutic. Here's what the research says about the effects of expressive writing on individual well-being. Expressive writing for only three days can actually lower depressive symptoms for up to six months. It can cut down on rumination symptoms, that is, that obsessive, unending thinking that keeps you up at night. Expressive writing can lower blood pressure and can actually reduce the number of visits you make to the doctor, which is amazing. Here's the language from one particular study about expressive writing that might help prompt you in your own writing. It says, thinking about this difficult topic 
Keep a journal of your deepest thoughts and feelings about this topic over the next month. Write down how you have tried to make sense of this situation and what you tell yourself about it to help you deal with it. If the situation you're describing does not yet make sense to you or it's difficult to deal with, describe how you are trying to understand it, make sense of it, and deal with it, and how your feelings may change about it. Now, one thing to note is that with expressive writing, in the short term, you may experience more negative emotions and stress at the very beginning. So it's over time that most of the benefits are seen. So be patient and keep moving forward as you start. Researchers don't know exactly why expressive writing works, what's going on in the process, and why it's therapeutic. There are at least two guesses right now. One of them is that it may act as some sort of exposure therapy to difficult feelings. Like you keep writing about it, and it's as if you're experiencing them over and over and over, and eventually your brain says, you know what, I'm not dying, nothing terrible is happening. Maybe this isn't as big of a deal as I thought it was. The other thing that researchers think could be happening is that the writing creates a structure, a, a story about your process of healing, and it's better than just sort of randomly writing. The fifth proven way to improve life satisfaction is invest time in your social network. Developing close personal relationships can have a huge impact on your health. People with very few social ties are actually twice as likely to die of heart disease and twice as likely to catch a cold compared to those that have close relationships. If you're married, hostility in that marital relationship doubles the time it takes for your wounds to heal. I want you to think about that for just a couple of seconds here. When you get a cut on your arm, if you are in a hostile marital relationship, it will take your body twice as long to heal the cut compared to your counterpart who's in a good, healthy marriage that has low hostility. That's absolutely incredible. Now, somebody may be thinking, well, how about, you know, social media, Facebook, Instagram, are those, do those people count? Do those relationships count? Absolutely, they totally count. However, research shows that the closer in proximity the friend is to you, so physical proximity, do they live down the street or do they live 2,000 miles away? The closer they live to you, the more powerful the impact of that relationship is on the physical health. So you really need to make friends with people that live close by. If we're talking about a, quote, thriving day, the data suggests that you're going to need at least six hours of social time every day. Now, don't panic. That sounds like a lot. That is a, quite a bit of time. But let me tell you what counts in that six hours. That can include time on the phone. It could be communicating with people at work. It could be hanging out with family or friends. It could be sending an email, even texting. Anything that involves interacting with another person in person or online counts in that six hours. Now, some of you are like, wow, I've, I scroll through my Facebook feed, you know, probably 12 hours a day. Okay, so scrolling through feeds or stalking people on the internet, that I'm going to go ahead and say that doesn't actually count. You have to interact with people on some level. And staring at what they ate for lunch, that's not interacting. Now, check this out. If you're over the age of 50, people who are socially active have their memories fade at less than half the rate of those who are minimally social. And in the context of work relationships, only about 30% of people report that they have a, quote, best friend at work. But those who do have a best friend at work are actually seven times as likely to be engaged in their jobs, they're better at engaging customers, they produce higher quality work, they have higher well-being, and they're actually less likely to get injured on the job by having a best friend at work. It's pretty amazing stuff. Okay, we're at number six now. 
find a cause, and make a contribution. When researchers talked to people who were thriving in life, and they asked them about the greatest contribution they'd made in their whole life, nearly all of them mentioned an impact they'd had on a person, a group, or a community. In other words, people. Now, what's really interesting to me is that many of us grew up with this idea that we're not supposed to tell other people the good things we're doing. We're supposed to just keep them to ourselves and that knowing that we did a good job will be the reward in and of itself, right? But research actually tells us something a little bit different. In order for that contribution to really feel truly meaningful to us, a critical factor is actually being recognized for the contribution. So being able to tell other people maybe not in an egotistical or arrogant kind of way, but let other people know that we've made the contribution, having a sense of recognition, having a sense that other people see that has a huge effect on whether we feel that that has improved our life satisfaction. So it's okay to go out and tell people, hey, I did this and it mattered in other people's lives. And let's take this a step further. People with high, what they call community well-being, they talk openly about the ways that they want to contribute. And when the right opportunity presents itself, they're actually more likely to be called upon to participate. So not only is it okay to talk about what you have done to make a meaningful contribution to the lives of others, but you should talk openly with others about the types of contributions you want to make in the future. You never know who's listening. You never know who in the group may actually have the very opportunity that you've been looking for. So don't be shy. Talk about what you want to do and who you want to help. The seventh proven way to improve your life satisfaction today is to start getting eight hours of sleep. Now, there's some research that says that maybe not everybody needs eight, and some people may even function better on less sleep, but the average person is going to benefit from at least eight hours of sleep a night. Now, I've got five kids, and my wife and I run a business together. We're extremely, extremely busy it's pretty rare that I get a full eight hours. That's something I really need to work on. The average American averages about 6.7 hours of sleep a night. One of the major benefits of sleep is improved learning. Let me share a few facts with you. Researchers have found that our brains actually learn better and we make connections better while we're sleeping compared to when we're awake. We're more likely to remember new skills or knowledge with a good night's sleep than without one. In one study, a group of people were taught to solve a math problem using a complicated procedure. They practiced the problem 100 times, and then they returned 12 hours later to practice another 200 times. And the trick was that there was actually a hidden shortcut to solving the math problem that participants were not told about. Those research participants who slept between the sessions were actually two and a half times more likely to discover the shortcut compared to those who didn't get that sleep. The reality is that the sleeping brain was solving a problem that the participants didn't even know existed. I don't know about you, but I've had a few amazing experiences in my life where my brain was clearly solving problems while I was asleep. I wake up and there's a solution to something I've been worrying about that there's no way I could have come up with just using my waking brain. In fact, one morning a couple years ago, I woke up and my brain in my sleep had created a mashup of a song by Jason Derulo and another song by Lady Gaga, of all people. Somehow my brain had discovered that both songs had the same tempo, the same chord structure, and were in the same key. 
and it decided to create a mashup. It actually sounded pretty cool. I immediately grabbed my computer and tried to search to see if anybody else had discovered this amazing thing, and they had. There was already a mashup that was created on YouTube by another person who probably thought it up in their sleep, just like I did. And finally, number eight, consider not telling people what your goals are. I know this seems counterintuitive. Most of the time, we get told that we should always tell other people our goals so that we can be held accountable. But there's something that's been called the substitution effect. That is, our brain substitutes our good intentions for a sense of accomplishment. When we share with people what our goals are, our brain starts to assume that we've already made progress toward them, that we're moving along, even though we've done absolutely nothing. In fact, in a number of studies, research participants who shared what their goals were were less likely to work toward those goals and more delusional about how much progress they'd made. The substitution effect can be really powerful. Most of the time, we need some type of an audience to pat us on the back and give us a high five about having achieved a certain goal. But when we get the pat on the back and the high five for simply saying that we want to achieve the goal, our brain gets what it wants and decides not to put the effort in. And then we don't achieve our goals. So I often tell people, write your goal down and work toward it daily, but don't tell anyone what the goal is. Just decide that as soon as you've made significant dramatic progress or you've achieved the goal, then you can tell people. For a lot of people, it actually increases the likelihood that they'll get things done. In the eight things I've shared today, you could easily implement one or two of those right now. And based on the research, you would have an immediate return on investment and have an improved sense of life satisfaction starting tomorrow. I want to say a sincere thank you to all of you who have posted positive reviews about the podcast. It means a ton to me. So thank you for that. And those of you who are new, I hope you'll consider continuing to listen and maybe leave a review. That would be awesome. See you soon.